0: Welcome everyone to uh, the latest episode of the Guardians of the Flame podcast. Uh, it's really good, it's a bright sunny December day here in um, on the north coast of Northern Ireland and uh, we're in a city that is known by, I suppose, two different names depending on what side of the street you grew up in. Um, it's nowadays people call it Derry Londonderry um, and so I'll probably have to keep calling it that the whole way through, just so we don't offend uh, anyone listening. But um, it's a real privilege to interview, We're, right now I'm gonna interview James Greer and then um, uh, and later on uh, Kathleen Gillespie um, and Ann Walker. And uh, it's, um, I think these kind of conversations are just very, very special. I find them very moving. Uh, and I think you're gonna find this conversation it's trying to get to the scratch this behind the surface of what you see when you look. Uh, you know, many people listening to this may not be from Ireland. And if you look at Ireland, you think of green fields and it's all very beautiful. Uh, but actually, the real beauty, I think, is in the lives of people who have lived here um, and who have made courageous decisions and have had difficult lives and have made mistakes, but who uh, today are living in a country that's rebuilding itself. And um, so with saying some of that, it's a it's a great James Greer to to meet you and uh, to have you here with us and thanks for giving us your time. No problem. And uh, it's I, um, I've uh, we were sitting there beforehand and we were laughing our heads off it as we're kind of talking about stuff. So we're gonna trying to hold it together for this. Uh, we'll do our best. you got to try. Well, having said all that, <laughs> we survived 40 years of tragic,
1: you know, terrible, horrendous troubles, mm. and I think part of our survival
0: mechanism mm. is our That's ability so. to not take ourselves too seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. Well, James, why don't we start kind of early on in your life? Tell mm. us just a bit about the background uh, that you had, and then we'll kind of go well, into what happened. Well, my later. mother and father, right, my mother was from Donegal, Muff, There's
1: just across the border in Derry. It's only, I think it's five miles uh, down the road. Is Donegal. Just across the border, Muff, my mother and her whole family. Now, Muff in those days, I have to put a bit of context in this, was a very, very, very small, rural village. And that'll make sense in a second. My father was from up the Letterkenny County Road in a place called... Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it now, but just not that far out of Derry, a couple of miles outside Derry. And uh, Belugary, funny name, but this place is full of funny mm. names. Uh, he and my mother both had TB, and they met in the TB hospital. Now, in those days, her, my mother's sister died with the TB. Her child, Grace's child, died with the TB, as did her husband. Mm. So what? who survived that was their son. So the family was wiped out, barring their son, who was a baby at the time. My mother got the TB and was put under... Basically, they were put under... I don't want to labour this too much, but it's important, mm. it's context. They put under that hospital and basically they die. You know, most of the people died. And my mother reckons her survival was down to her, pouring her medicine out the... It was like an old... It was an old army hospital. So it was Nissan Huts, if you know what mm. Nissan Huts mm-hmm. are. They're just round and mm-hmm. half-round 10 huts. And she poured her medicine out and it actually took the paint off the Nassan hut. Mm. But my father was there as well. He was in the mail ward obviously. So he and I got there, he and I he and she got together. And uh they uh fell in love, I suppose. They put it so- mm. I often think of but this you know, it was like wartime love. It was they weren't mm. they probably thought they weren't gonna see Another six months, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was that type of thing. My mother fell pregnant, and uh, you heard me saying she was from a rural village in, uh, in a, a mm-hmm. Donegal mm-hmm. towns, uh, village. Uh, you can imagine, you know, the tongues wagon there. My granny mm-hmm. was the housekeeper in a big house, mm-hmm. so it was like Downton Abbey type affair, so the whole family every one of them was involved in that my mother could not love there that was mm-hmm. it so me on board and they got on the boat down there at the Foyle side mm-hmm. and they headed over to scotland mm-hmm. now the, the, there was a thing there called the scotch boat and only people of a certain age would sort of mm-hmm. remember the boat mm-hmm. you know and they went to scotland and they got married great mm-hmm. in the green as they do They left there and they headed down, they got on a train and they headed down. Now they went to Bristol, I have no idea why they went to Bristol. No, I think they might have went to London first, sorry. Because my father actually tried to get a job with British Rail, but he's colour blind. And he didn't know he was colour blind. And he didn't manage to get through that. They went to Bristol, he got a job, a good job, and my mother had a big three-story townhouse and she used that that was became her business. However, when I was three, when I was three, they actually came back here and took up residence at the church, at the bottom of the hull here. So for, from where we're sitting now it wouldn't be half a mile and I was reared in that environment and a very, very, very religious. And My mother was a very religious person anyway to the day she died. And I was reared in that environment, you know. Mm. Now, when I, the house that we lived in was an old converted stable. It was only two bedrooms. And I was about nine, I think, and my younger sisters, one was six and the other one was five and we left there and we moved to a place called Mulltown, which as a crow flies would have been maybe another three quarters of a mile, maybe at the max. And it was a rural housing development. There was 38 houses. And I was saying earlier on to somebody that, you know, the the top of one hill you had the church, then you went down the church spray, you went under the Glendermott Valley, and then you went up another called the Chapel Bray and the Roman Catholic Church was mm-hmm. at the top of that Bray. Mm-hmm. Now, me, uh, most boys at that time were footballers. I was not a footballer. Mm. But the guys that I knocked about, we f- were from up a Chapel Bray mm-hmm. neighborhood. So I associated with them, you know, more than anybody else. And that was the way I grew up, you know what I mean? Until I was about, I'll say, you know, 15 maybe. And then I noticed, you know, it wasn't as if we purposely decided that we would go our separate ways. It was just that those friends were replaced by other friends, and it didn't happen in any malice or in any structured way that I can recall. It just happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started working, and I left school and became an apprentice. You know, can I remember the teacher coming to my mother and saying he wanted me to stay on at school and do exams and blah, blah, blah. And my mother chased him out of the house and said, mm-hmm. you are clean, crazy. This guy is gonna be an apprentice and he's gonna be uh, bringing a wage into the house. Mm-hmm. And that was a priority in those days. Uh, I started working as an apprentice joiner, which I didn't like it. I wanted to be a mechanic of mm-hmm. anything. And I was actually working on the RUC station, and I can remember, you know, down there as well. And my baptism—you've got to take a wee country, by you know—who was, was only three miles from where I was was the the centre of Derry. But it was pretty rural, so there I was. From that environment, you know, taken into a totally alien environment, and, you know, where there was a lot of houses and people and hustle and bustle and bombs going off, and one thing or another,
0: because the start of the it troubles it, it at that, that point. Was the early 70s,
1: late 60s? I would say 1970, mm. maybe, or, you know, thereabouts.
0: Yeah,
1: about And uh, I was only a boy. In fact, it was 1970, I was 15. Uh, I was there, you know, and I'll tell you just, you know, it was, one of the parts that we were working at, it was three stories high with a, it was a flat top, we should go up there and watch the bombs going off, Mm. you know, and that was, to me it was fascinating and frightening and about equal measure. Mm. You know, and another thing that sticks in my mind, you know, and it's only something that I've really, you know, learned to appreciate the the severity of it now, Mm. and the work that I do, that, you know, the tear gas would have been so bad in the bog side that it was blown, if the one was blown in the right direction, we would actually be sent home. Because, you know, somebody would come out and say, right, that's it, can't work in this environment. Mm. And what I didn't appreciate, you know, until I was much, much, much older, was that the people who lived on the bog side, now, not people who were writing, I'm talking about people, young mothers with children, Mm. elderly people, blah, blah, Mm. were suffering. They were direct, they were on top of the trouble. Mm. Now, we were, as a crow flies, maybe... must have been the most a half a mile, but more than a quarter of a mile at least anyway
0: from that. Can I ask a question about yeah, that sure. time? So, you know, the, for those who are watching this who are maybe not from Ireland, um, our conflict, kind of British, Irish, the British side see themselves usually as Protestants. The Irish side see themselves as Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um um, we, did you have a strong sense of Britishness at the time, and kind of "God Save the Queen" and all that kind of stuff? Uh,
1: no, not really. My father, my father's mother, was from the Bogside; she mm-hmm. was a Catholic, mm-hmm. and my mother was from Muff, mm-hmm. who did her lessons in Irish. Oh, wow. So. But she never really spoke it. Well, she spoke it, she used to do it when she was a bad temper. She would speak Irish, but she never really did it that much. But she was
0: Protestant. She is I mean,
1: Protestant, aye. Yeah. Church of Ireland, and my oh, father's Church of yeah. Ireland, although my granny, as I say, yeah. married my grandad, and as they would have said mm. in those days, she turned. Mm. You know, and that never she was never accepted back into that family. Mm. So now me and a cousin of mine are actually doing research and trying to uh, find out a wee bit more about it. Because I always have cousins, you know, knocking about dairy. mm mm-hmm. Uh, that I'd never heard tell of. Uh, So I, no, I wasn't brought up with that that, that thing. Mm-hmm. And, but yet and all, you know, in the late 60s, you know, Paisley was here and the politics in Ireland, the politics in the world, if you look at it broadly, but the politics in Ireland was certainly dictating that there was a lot of unrest and, you know, civil unrest here and civil unrest in Europe and civil unrest everywhere you went, basically. Mm-hmm. And it was like almost, you know, you have to choose a side, and I was, I have to take responsibility for myself, but at the same time, you know, I was forced down an avenue that, you know, if I look back on it now, maybe I wouldn't do it again. Mm. But having said all that, the choices were made and the things that happened, happened. And, uh... The UDA was just becoming, in fact, the UDA wasn't even the UDA, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but it was born in Belfast, up the Shankill Road, mm-hmm. and it was the Woodville Defence Association. And then other places, you know, like the, the, the Newton-Harris Road would have the newton Road Defence Association, mm-hmm. and such and such defence association. And then somebody said, why don't we just call it the Ulster Defence mm-hmm. Association? So that was where the UDA came from. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were actually, the housing estate across the road from here is commonly known. There's no such place, by the way, as Irish Street, but it's commonly known as Irish Street. And uh, the barricades were the thing at the time, and the whole dairy site had been closed off and barricaded, and here was the same. And I don't, there was no real, people thought they were protecting the area, you know. And that was all right, and my friends had all joined the UDA at that point, and I didn't. And uh, so I was still working as a joiner, as an apprentice, and I went away and joined the Army. I spent a year in the Irish Range, same Battalion the Irish Rangers, but the postings went up and I was being sent to Cyprus. And I rebelled, and I said I would not be going to Cyprus. I was only one in the platoon. I think there was 22 of us in the platoon, and I was the only one going to Cyprus. And I thought they were picking on me. How foolish was I? But uh, I left eventually and came back here. And, uh, you know, the place had... Gone from bad to worse. You know, I come back here, the, the troubles at that point then were boiling and raging. 1972 was the worst year of the troubles. Mm-hmm. Bombings, killings, you know, that was it. That filled the airwaves, it filled the nightly news. Nobody talked about anything other than who was killed today, who was blown up, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. The UDA, the, the, where I lived, Police Coat, Maltown, was actually then. Uh, expanded, they built, I think, I'm not sure how many, roughly 200 more houses were built and the UDA moved into that area and all my friends who had been in the UDA anyway. And I would never say that I was forced, coerced or, you know, pressured in any way, but to cut a long story short, I eventually joined the UDA. And I can remember the night I joined the UDA, like it was yesterday, you know, I went into a room, a darkened room. There were three men sitting behind a table with masks on them. There was another man with a mask on him standing beside me. He handed me a statement, uh, a a swearing-in statement, an oath. He held it in front of me and told me to read it. While I had a gun in my left hand and my extended hand, I had a Bible. Mm. And that was it. And I remember thinking, Oh dear, because they made it very clear, you know, there and then that you're not believing this organization alive. That was the way of it. And I think the seriousness of it then just began to, you know, falter into my seventeen year old brain. I was seventeen.
0: Wow.
1: You know what I mean? And I realized then, I thought, What the hell? Hmm. This is not hmm. But you know, I felt trapped then. Hmm. And also, you know, they, they would they 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 would sort of make you do things that were basically, you know, stupid things like writing and you know breaking wonders and hijacking cars and mm. stuff like that, not low-level stuff, you know. Mm. And then it just graduates on graduates on till it becomes very serious,
0: you know. So Can I ask one question just yeah, to also sure. about while we're, because, you know, one of the themes of our series is looking at often how religion's used in conflict areas mm. to justify each side's, yeah. did you have a sense, even though, you know, today you're not a religious person back then, did you have a sense of well, maybe what I'm doing, joining them as and God's happy with me to do this. I don't or, know if I yeah. personally believe that, you know, but I, that was
1: the overarching mm. thing of, of the organisation, you mm. know. what I mean, God's always on everybody's side. You, know, you go back to the First World War, you know, and you, the, mm. the soldiers were blessed by their minister on the British side, mm. and you know, the same minister of the same church, not the same minister, but you know what I mean, yeah. the same church, was blessed on the, the, the German side mm. and saying you go forth and you know, blah blah blah, and you know. So, yeah. God's in everybody's side, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. At that point, so I, there was, there was God in Ulster was, you know, God in Ulster is a UVF slogan, but it was used by us as well mm-hmm. You know, for God in Ulster, and you know, mm-hmm. Ulster Freedom Fighters, you know, the UDA morphed into the UFF, mm-hmm. although nobody was ever allowed to, allowed to say that. Mm-hmm. And uh, aye, so God is a part of it, you know what I mean? And uh, 1974, we were sent out to do some 10th October 1974, And we were handling an an explosive device, myself and a friend. And uh, it went off prematurely. And, you know, I often tell people, you know, that I didn't know what had happened. There was a big ball. I didn't hear a bang. You know, you can't outrun a bomb because bombs go off and it just happens in a nanosecond. Uh, My friend lost his arm. his his right arm had been blown off. I was all covered in shrapnel, but, you know, for some odd reason, I was in one piece. The army descended on us. They had been sitting watching us, you know, and I often say, you know, that had it mean a few years later, You know, they wouldn't have arrested us, they would have shot us, because that became the thing that became known as shoot the kill, because it was basically, you know, saving a lot of trouble, just shoot the terrorists and be done with, you know. Uh, So we were fortunate. My friend was fortunate in a way that the army took him into care, the army hospital, put him in a helicopter, took him to an army hospital and saved his life. Because you're not going to survive very long with your arm off, you know, because your blood's just... Yeah. Being being pumped out of your body. Mm. Um, we were interrogated at uh, in the, in the old barracks, you know, and it was known as the Victoria Barracks, and for three days. Now, nowadays, you'd be put on their forensic suit and, you know, blah, blah, but in those days, there was none of that. And I had a pair of trousers on me, and they were so saturated in blood that they hardened, and they were like wood. So you could scarcely bend your legs because, you know, they, they dried. And uh, interestingly, you know, the, the thing that happened next changed my life forever. We were remanded and there, uh, to Crumlin Road Prison, which is an old Belfast. Victorian, Belfast, an old Victorian prison, which is now basically a museum, nothing more, to Sea Wing, which was the loyalist wing at that time the UVF and the UDA shared that. And such was the level of troubles that young people, and believe it or not, 19-year-olds were going in there like a conveyor belt. Now, this is true of Republicans. I have friends who were in the Republican uh, conflict. It was the same and that on their side. It was unbelievable. In fact, it was so unbelievable that you would have been sent to... Crumlin Road. You would have been there for a couple of months, then you would have been shipped out to Cache mm. where there was more space, and your places would have been filled. You know, such was where w- were people packed. You know, and I have to say packed because they were packed under Crumlin Road, like sardines. Cells in Crumlin Road were made for one person. There were six people in them. Bunk beds were three on top of each other on both sides. Mm. You know, and I remember talking to Americans one time. You know, and they said. Uh, And what was the sanitation like? And they were in disbelief when I said it was a bucket in the corner and a jug of water. And from a half past eight at night until a half past eight in the morning, that was it. Um, But the thing that changed my life happened there. And I'm not sure, you know, I'm thinking it might have been around the start of December. I met this guy. We'll call him Fred. And uh, you were not allowed under any circumstances to talk to anybody about why you were there and the reason for that was that the army the the British uh, forces would stick in spies mm. you know and you could say to me ah well I'm from Armash. I don't know if you're from Armagh. I just know you fr- from seeing you you know so you weren't not allowed to talk to anybody so this guy comes and says ah my name's Fred and I uh, I'm in here for killing people and I'm sort of going, because you weren't allowed to ask questions in there because that labelled you as possible potential Mm. person gathering information. And uh, I, uh, oh, really? Right, right, right. I was sent out to kill this shopkeeper. Now, this may sound callous, you know, but given it was 1974, so that context... It doesn't make anything that happened right, but I'm just saying it was a time of tragedy.
0: Yeah,
1: it's crazy Crazy doesn't even cover it. It was manic and crazy. Mm. You know, And, and he says, uh, and then this was a corner shop, and he says, I'm going to kill this shopkeeper, and I'm going, all right, okay. Now, this shopkeeper's crime was probably it was a Roman Catholic. Mm. So back to your point of the division mm. of, you know, mm. Catholics and Protestants. Mm-hmm. So this man had an area, a, a shop in an area that was probably mm-hmm. uh, Catholic stroke mm-hmm. nationalist mm-hmm. in those days. And he goes into the shop, corner shop, tons of them around. In those days, I don't know if it's the same nowadays, but you opened the door and it went ding. He mm-hmm. walked in. And usually the, the counter, behind the counter would have been a door and it would have went into the dwelling, generally speaking, into the kitchen, because my grandfather actually had a shop for a summer. And the man comes out and says, hello, sir, can I help you? And he pulls out a gun, shoots him. Now, Freddie's telling me this, and I'm sort of thinking, going, okay, I'm a tough guy. Oh, really, Freddie? Mm. Doesn't rest that easy with me, to be honest. And I says, I felt myself saying, you know, and I shouldn't have, but I said, what happened then? I he says, I went to leave, he says, and the door of the kitchen opened again, he says, and walked his wife. Now, there was a, I us say like a moral code in those days, but you didn't shoot women, you didn't shoot children, you didn't shoot holy men, regardless of whose holy men they were. There was a a line that nobody crossed, Mm. you know, an unwritten rule, maybe, if you want to call it that, and uh, I says, oh, no, no, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to look tough at the same time. So oh, please, don't tell me. I uh, says, I shot her too. Because she, she seen her husband lying on the ground and he was in a pool of blood and he was either dead or dying. So she was screaming the walls. And he says, what else could I do? So I had to shoot her. And I go, trying my best not to look shocked. And I said, then what did you do? And he says, oh, I want to leave. Uh he says, I just got the exit, the leave, and next thing the door opened again, and then walked away to eight-year-old daughter. You know, he probably seen the colour drain out of my face at that point, you know, because I said, You're not gonna say what I think you're gonna say. But I felt myself saying, you know, what did you do? And he says, I started shooting at her, of course. So he's jesting with his hand, you know bang, 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 bang. And he says, and the gears running around the shop screaming, and he's running around after her, shooting at her. You know, and again, I said, you know, what was outcome at? And with the most what? visible sign of disappointment I've ever seen, he it, it, it it had red hair for a start. He was, you know, with a high cheek colour, he was sort of very, you know, red anyway, naturally red. And I remembered as well, he had a brown leather jacket on him and a plaid shirt, you know, and on the day I die, I'll, that image will never leave me, you know. And he says, uh, I said, what happened? I ran out of ammunition, He says. And he looked so disappointed with himself that he'd run out of ammunition and he wasn't able to kill that girl who'd just killed her mother and father two seconds earlier. You know. And I went away, I left that guy who subsequently hanged himself, I have to say. Mm. I left him and I went away to my cell, you know, and I lay down and I thought I can't. I can't be a part of this. You know, this is this is too much for me, mm-hmm. for James, you know. So I vowed there and then that whatever happened, that I would devote my life to peace, to fighting you know, peaceful solutions to our troubles here because, you know, mm-hmm. doing things like that were not the answer. It was never going to be the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, so that, that that was my epiphany, you know, and strangely, you know, only 40 years later that have I met people from both sides, mm-hmm. you know, from Republican and Loyalist Sage, who had similar experiences, stages, you know, right. that, that things happened mm-hmm. and. They were left questioning themselves, you know what I mean? Now, I was eventually sentenced mm-hmm. to prison for causing an explosion, and I was in Long cash I was actually in Long Cash at the start of the year in 1975. The IRA had set fire to it, so we were sort of on bread and water, basically. Mm-hmm. The, well, it was bread and soup, but nobody would ever drink the soup or take the soup because uh, the word went out that the army had been using it as a urinal. Mm. So because it was an, coming from an army mm. soup kitchen, and i mm. So, so we drank tea mm. and had bread.
0: Mm. Well, and how long were you in there for?
1: I for in Long Kish? Yes, yeah. I was only in Long Kish for a few months. Okay. Then I come back. I was sentenced to a total of fifteen years. Mm. I that was three fives. So, eventually, was sent back to Long Kish. I was there for a while. Then in those days, you know, I don't know why they did this, but they used to put us in helicopters. So they stuck us all in a Wessex. Wessex is Wessex a big helicopter. Mm-hmm. And they flew us to McGilligan, where I spent, you know, the rest of my time okay. in jail. I left prison, you know, and prison, you know, it's, it's, it's weird to say it, you know, but it's like it becomes like a family. Because mm-hmm. everybody's there, everybody knows everybody, and it's, you know... We have our ups and downs. It's just like family life. You know, people squabble, people argue, people laugh, people cry. It's pretty much family environment, you know. And uh, I left there, but I left there knowing that I would never go back to that violent, uh, I don't environment. Maybe I don't know. And.
0: did you need to kind of lay, well, like leave just, the UDA? I, then, well, I,
1: you know, certainly I I had to leave the UDA, but like, as I said to you at the start of this, mm. you know, that they had made it very clear that I would not be leaving the UDA. Mm. So they approached me. I wasn't very long out of jail and they approached me. and mm-hmm. oh, We want you back. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, hmm, really? And I thought to myself, well, if I turn my back and try and walk away, they'll kill mm. me. Mm. That's, uh, you know... That's the kind of decision they make, and it's not even like we don't like you or anything, it's just business. We we can't have you running around, Mm. you know what I mean? You're either in or you're out, you know, Mm. know, you're living or you're dead. But I backed away from them, you know, and I spent a couple of years backing away from them Mm. because it was the only way I knew that I could survive leaving the area, and eventually they got tired, Mm -hmm. you know, and I ended up. By happenstance, my wife was working for an organisation in Belfast that dealt with sexual abuse. And she met this guy called Jerry, who was a a Quaker. And she was actually doing a a piece of work for him. And he came out of a a hostel, and he says, Hello, my name's Jerry, and blah, 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 and I introduced myself. And he says, "If something, 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 he says, you know, if you ever and I said, well, Jerry, look, I'll tell you what. I said, if, you, if ever I can do anything for you, please, you know, don't mm-hmm. contact my wife, and mm-hmm. she'll contact me, and mm-hmm. we'll see. Mm-hmm. And maybe a week later, I get a phone call, and he says, look, I mean, you were saying you're this and that and the other thing, and as uh, you know, as as I've said in the past, you know that Quakers were great people. Quakers are great people. They don't. They're they're very unassuming. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Like, until I was, you know, and better equipped or better educated, I did realize that they went into the prisons, that they did a lot of work behind the scenes with families, you know, and never really, you know, wanted any credit for it. They, they, they just went about their work and did it. And I was very attracted to that. So I started out working with him on a, on a holiday project, but eventually... And you may have heard of this and you may not. There's a thing called QPEP. Q- have you heard tell of it? No. no. It's a Quaker Peace Education Project. Oh, okay. And uh, I was on the ground floor of that. There was about, I have to say, maybe eight of us. And we were based at McGee, uh, mm-hmm. McGee University there in Derry. Mm-hmm. And I worked with him for about five years. And what we were doing, because he, you know, on those early days, and this is 86 or something like that again, mm-hmm don't go for times because I'm not great with Mm -hmm. times or uh, dates. But I worked with him for five years, you know, working in schools with young people, you know, and I learned a hell of a lot, you know, from that man. And it sort of equipped me for working with other organisations. Now, sadly, that guy died, actually, with cancer. But I then went on to other organizations, you know, and eventually, you know, I had bounced about between half a dozen different, you know, organizations. And eventually, uh, a guy who's a musician here in Derry rings me up, a man called Royer Buckle, and he says, uh, James, there's an American lady in town here and she wants to speak to you. My first thought was, how does she know she wants to speak to me? She's just come here from America, you know. So obviously he had a conversation. I thought, Greer would be an interesting guy for you to speak to, you know. And uh, I said, no, I'll not be talking to her. I don't like Americans. They come here and they're just going to solve all our problems in the first <laughs> 10 minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. 40 years, oh, give me 10 minutes and I'll do it. Mm-hmm. That type of affair, mm-hmm. you know. But Roy, I put my phone down on Roy, ignorantly, or, you know, rudely. And Roy says, uh, he phones me back. And he said, look, you just meet her and talk to her for a few minutes. He says, it's not going to kill you, is it? And I says, right. And I says, well, she wants to come see me. She can come. I'm not going to meet her. She can come to my house. I didn't realise at that point, you know, and this is sort of hilarious and serious at the same time. She is the worst driver I have ever met in my entire life. She came to my house and she crashed her car in a pretty serious accident. Now, she and I became the best of friends. In fact, I was just talking to her the day before yesterday. And, uh, but uh, her introducing me to what was known as the, uh, uh, We we Carried Your Secrets, was the program that we were in, and the overall, the overarching thing, and that was uh, Theatre of Witness. Mm-hmm. And she had been involved for years and years and years in the States, in fact, in the States and, and various countries throughout the world, Uh, working with people in conflict and, you know, allowing them, well, maybe not even conflict, but people in stressful situations. Like she worked with lifers in the Mm -hmm. Pennsylvania State Penitentiary. Like life, and I mean life as in full-term life. Mm -hmm. You know, and she showed me some of her work, you know, and it was just compelling, I suppose, is the only word. She letting
0: people tell their
1: stories? She was allowing people, you know, and what she used to say was, you know, you have to understand here Mm -hmm. that there's medicine in those stories. Mm -hmm. Now, the medicine is, you know, good for the person telling the story, definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, but it also, you know, it's healing for the people who are witnessing the story. Mm -hmm. You know, so, and theatre is in the title, but it's not overly theatrical. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be on a stage, but, Mm -hmm. like, the theatrical input is pretty minimal. You know, and she does that on purpose. She doesn't want because what she thinks is people will focus on the theatrical end of it, mm. and there's may you may lose, mm. you know, something in the and that production, mm. and that was that was that was another you know life change because I told that woman, like I had you know been married, mm-hmm. I had never told my wife any of my stuff. I had two children, I had never told them. I had a massive circle of friends and family, and I'd never told anyone. No, I don't know why. Like, you know, and you, you find this all the time that people like me don't tell anybody, and it felt like a secret, kind of. Aye, and do mm. you believe or not? That's you know. Mm you're gonna, you're, mm. you're hadn't on what what the thing was going. was mm. your, we carried your secrets and that mm. actually came from a girl who was part of the, our our thing was, was was you know older there was two generations so it was cross generational mm. and one of the younger ones like she was only i don't know she's only 20 or something you know and she was discussing you know that people of her generation were burdened by the past and as much as they knew things had happened like, this young girl's father was a police officer in uh, Oma, mm. you know, during that oh. horrific explosion okay. where, where those people were killed, you know, and she wasn't permitted to discuss it or right. air it or anything else, you know, and that was bent up inside her, you know, and she came out one day and I was, we were just talking, to, they were talking to another guy about the thing that, the other day there just, and, you know, she said, she sort of blurted it out, you know, do you realise we've carried your secrets since we were young? Mm. And Taya picked up on that, you know, being the, the woman's a geniusly, mm. picked up on it straight away and she christened, mm. you know, or she entitled...
0: The work that we were doing or that particular project uh we carried your secrets wow so telling your story became like medicine is the way well, you she, described didn't, it. she
1: didn't like you saying that you know uh, and uh, the one of the young guys who was one of the the, the younger generation and that his father was a Fein counselor who had been actually killed assassinated by my organization you know and i remember him sitting saying one day to her like and she didn't particularly think this was Mm. Well, he said, look, he says, I've been on therapy since I was a child, since my father was killed. He says, and this is the best therapy I have ever had. You know, and what myself and Anne, who you'll probably Mm. speak to, Mm. would often say is, you know, there's no substitute for the truth. Mm. You know, you can't... People know authenticity when they see it, Mm. you know, and they know... You Know BS Mm -hmm. when they say it, Mm -hmm. they know lies. You can't can't get away with lies for very, very long. My Mm -hmm. mother used to say, You know, you know, you lie so long, you need a good memory, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's true. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And uh, so, the authenticity of what you're doing or the value Mm -hmm. of what you're doing is coming out Mm -hmm. in your voice, and Mm -hmm. that in itself, I think, is part of that healing process. Mm -hmm. Like the audiences, I can remember, you know, when we were getting prepared to do, I actually thought she was writing the book at the start. Mm You know what I mean? So I, I, I'm being interviewed by her for weeks and end. Mm-hmm. And then one fine day she says, oh uh, yes James, hmm mm-hmm. And she said, you know what, I told her things mm-hmm. like and she says, I actually shook as I was mm-hmm. telling her mm-hmm. because I had never told anyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, when I get you on the stage, and I went, on the stage, he's crazy, I don't to be me on mm-hmm. the stage. But what she actually said was, you know, mm-hmm. I want people on the stage who the last thing they ever want to do mm. was be on the stage. Mm. Mm. And that's, but that was the people she got, and she got six people. You know, she interviewed, mm. for my part, she interviewed, I think she had 42 people or something. Wow. So it was the same for everybody. So she didn't just go and grab the first six people she found. Mm. You know, she must have interviewed mm. hundreds of people. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And she, that was her. Thora
0: would not even begin to mm. describe it. You know what I mean? I wonder, uh, James. We we had a couple of interviews um, in the last couple of days, and one of the themes coming up was about memories and remembering, and mm. what's the best what's the best way to heal a society. Even talking about we were talking about places like Bosnia, where the, the Srebrenica massacre was, and other massacres and things, and, and, and of course Northern Ireland. And mm. what's a, You know, one one way to deal with the past is war criminals. You know, The Hague put them in front of a court. Another way is South Africa, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's more voluntary. People voluntarily tell their stories, tell the truth. Um, It seems like it's not always easy to know what to do with the past. And then you've got expensive, you know, you've got the Bloody Sunday Tribunal here, which, you know, was certainly necessary. But there's so many things that happened during our conflict and where do you start what's your feeling about the past and as a society how do we I move think on? you know
1: I think people hold on to the past and you know I often say this you know that the last japanese soldier emerged from a, a jungle in 1976 now everybody knew he was in that jungle but they couldn't find him and eventually they sent a guy who'd been out looking for him they knew his name, and they manipulated speakers. He says, "Look, come on." He actually said afterwards himself, "I thought they were trying to capture me. I thought they were trying to bluff me, and they coming on." Because I think there was three of them, and he was the only mm. one. That the rest of them died with old age, you know. Mm. And that's hard to believe, but that is the truth. Yeah, yeah. So, I often would say to people, you know, when we're talking and we're doing workshops, and like, is this what we should do? Mm. Should we carry on? You know, you know, should you know the war in Europe be still raging? Mm. You know, did somebody in nineteen forty? Five, say, right, we have to learn from the, the the past here that the First World War was the grounds for the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Do we want a Third World War? No, I don't think we do. So we're going to have to figure out a way of doing this, mm-hmm. you know, and they instigated the Marshall mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Plan at that point. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and, and so that's what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, we are maybe still on the foundations mm-hmm. stage, but I think there's a wide recognition now that you know that what we are doing is, is of great value. Mm. You know, I would never blow my own trumpet, and never would even attempt to blow my own trumpet. Mm. I am part of a larger body of people who are, you know, serving our communities, you know, and far and wide, in fact, if it comes to that. But you know, serving our communities by sharing our experiences. You know, like we talked about forgiveness earlier mm. on. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness for me is, you know, it's a religious thing, and I do believe in a way, mm. you know, but How do you forgive? When do you forgive? You know, or mm. like if you took my pencil, I mm. would say, oh, don't worry about it. It's only a pencil. You know, if you killed mm-hmm. my family, I might mm. think it slightly differently. So what I often say is instead of forgiveness, you know, is try and understand. Try and look mm. at the other person and say, mm. What, what, what was going on there? You know, mm. was it, mm. you know, uh, forgiveness? Like forgiveness, if you mm. think about forgiveness, you know, it's a mm. massive, massive, massive yeah.
0: thing. And, yeah. a, and it's, it's a standalone subject, mm. Mm. you know. And it can, as a word, mean lots of different things to of, of course and, it does. You know, it's hard I, to define. I think what you're describing is empathy, is putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah. Um, did, do you ever, when you reflect back, like you were, like we interviewed people who were victims during the Troubles mm. or in other conflicts and people who were former combatants, mm. um, did you, do you ever, ever sense that in some ways you were a victim, you know, in that sense? Or that, the, the whole you know, society the, were victims yeah. I
1: think society, you know, our general, you know, society were victims. I think it, it, me at 18, 17, when I signed up, I was 17 years old. Was I a victim? Was I a boy soldier? People are going, they, they know, are going to Rwanda and say, oh, they're boy soldiers. All right, we were, we were boy soldiers. Mm. I remember being handed a gun and not knowing what end it was up. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And I mm. I do believe, you know, and I know a lot of people don't like, they don't like the idea that, mm. you know, we would regard ourselves mm. as victims. Yeah. But at the same time, how do you, like, I know I was a combatant, mm. you know, I know it's complicated. Yeah, you know what I mean. Pardon me, but if you if you want to try and understand, you know, me and two thousand other young people who were through the process as victims or combatants mm. or both.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, I um, just when you look at, at uh, this country today. You're describing events that happened in the early '70s when yeah, Derry was definitely, probably, probably, maybe the worst affected big, certainly big town of, during the Troubles, and um, and it's healing. It's it's a it's a beautiful city now, really. When you walk around, um, of course, there's still challenges. Um, do you kind of have hope? Do you feel like we can move on, or do you feel like there's still underlying issues that could just kind of like a, a you know, explode again? Or-
1: Right, well, that's, there's sort of three points there. Mm. Uh, optimism, I do feel optimism. I do, you know, now see some ownership of dairy mm. for, for, for me. And I think there's a lot of people, you know, showing that, I'm going to say civic pride, but I'm going to say that, you know, there's an ownership of dairy, you know, and there's been a mm. lot of work has happened in dairy behind the scenes to make that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, for people like me they own my, whatever I own at dairy. Mm-hmm. But I talk about dairy you now with great passion, mm-hmm. you know, and the history, you know, and I could sit here now and talk for an hour a week about mm-hmm. the history of dairy, but we have one of the richest histories in any mm-hmm. city in the world in all seriousness and how it actually affected the world. Like mm-hmm. the cathedral was the first Anglican cathedral mm-hmm. built after the Reformation. Right. No, do people know that? I doubt mm-hmm. it very much. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm talking about St. St. Colm's mm-hmm. Cathedral, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh... So I, mm. you know, and own, taking ownership of that, you know, is important and it's healing, you know, and I think young people have a better grasp or a better understanding maybe than the mm. young people now, I don't think, take anything at face value. Mm. You know, my father would have held a newspaper up and, and let you look at it and say, look, mm. th- th- that's a that's black and white. You're going to argue with that? Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a mm-hmm. gospel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Bible on one hand, what's the difference?
0: Yeah. This is the truth. Yeah, newspaper was seen as
1: you know, absolute truth. Well, it's story. come out in it. How's mm. you know, the notion was what can't speak, can't lay, mm. you know, type mm. affair, you know?
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I think you've touched on some really great stuff that I, th- I think is really fascinating. I love hearing you talk about the power of stories and how being able to speak the truth and not hold into it, not hold your secrets, as you were saying. Mm. Um, I, I think your journey is inspiring of meeting people who um, like the the Quaker guy you met too, uh, it seems like your life has been, you've kind of met these key people at times that have kind of been able to draw you on a journey. Mm-hmm. And, and a, and you know, now you're one of those people who's doing it for other well, people. Well, you
1: know, what I would say is, you know, that I have had a, like I didn't have a job, you No, know, get up and go to a job, 95, for 30 years and hate every day. I've had one of the most interesting existence that I, that I know about. Hmm. You know, it wasn't all good, mm-hmm. but it wasn't all bad. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, it was a journey, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And a, a journey that I don't know if I would change that much, I it to tell you the truth, because where I am now, you know, all the things that happened in the past have steered me towards where I am, sitting here now talking to you, you know what I mean? And I think that's important in itself, mm. you know? And if I can affect, change, touch, inspire other people, Mm. That can only be good, in my mind.
0: Yeah. Um, maybe uh, just finish, because we're going to be also... I'm not sure what order we're going to release some of these mm. interviews, but yeah. um, we'll also be interviewing Kathleen and Anne. Mm. And I know you're, they're friends of yours, and what's the friendship with them meant to you? Well, you know, when I it's hard, first... It's because they're in the back of the room there. So uh, well, to I'll them. try and be
1: as honest as I possibly can. You know, <laughs> Anne and I, you know, in all honesty... Have had very, very similar mm. paths.
0: Mm. And you I know, being in the IRA. I haven't
1: been in the IRA. I was a quartermaster in the UDA. Turns out Anne was a quartermaster in the And she'll tell you about all that herself. I don't have to tell you about that. But I think our similarities, you know, have brought us close. Our understanding, you know, like I talked to guys that <sighs> people that were inside, for instance, and people who were in organizations. Are part of a part of a club mm. that you can't join and you can't leave.
0: Mm.
1: You know what I mean? It's it's there. It's part of your DNA now. And we share that now. Anne and myself and Kathleen. You know, who God loves. She's a bit sort of well, but. You know we all work very closely together you know and i do i am basically the comedian of the gang so they they can forgive me for making sort of lighter of things but uh we do you know and you if you look back at the tragedy you know was particularly if you go back and look at kathleen's past and you know the death of her which is probably one of the most horrific incidents Mm. and and the history of the troubles in all Mm. seriousness. Not that you ever would want to have a a scale of what, Mm. you know, but nevertheless, and what's pretty bad, you know what I mean? Anne and myself being involved at a young age and what we went through, what we understood, what we didn't understand, you know, how we arrived at where we are, would often say, you know, that we're in a place now that we're happy we're in. Mm. We're doing work that we feel as. Worthwhile, mm. you know, and at times very challenging, but nevertheless, very worthwhile. And you know, Robin is a policeman who works closely with us. He says, mm. You know, if it was easily done, was it worth doing?
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, James, um, we ended our documentary we made a couple of years ago by talking about people who guard the flame of humanity, you mm. know, and I think, um, you're definitely one of those people, and you've um, uh, thanks for sharing your life uh, I don't the, know. the life of journeys of decisions, what you describe as mistakes, things you wish you hadn't done but then seeing your life being able to be used to be one of those people that brings healing in this land. Mm. And, um, I think an analogy you know,
1: the flame yeah. analogy is pretty good you know, to be honest, you know, because it's, it's a double-sided thing, you yeah. know what I mean good and bad. you know and thankfully, you know, the, well I believe where I am now is a good place you know, yeah it is So thanks, James, so much. Well, thank for, you, uh, sir, for, for your, your and... listening and your yeah. endurance. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and putting up with your jokes. Well, you know. bad jokes. we saved you know? od- save the audience much <laughs> from that, but, uh, it's good. Yeah. much that. So thank you, James. On, thank on you that note, yeah, sir, All yeah. Right. yeah. Thanks, everyone.